Hi, welcome to The Intern Whisperer. Our show is all about the future of work and innovation. And today's guest, I've been waiting for her for two years. I'm so happy to have her. I know it's a long wait, but you're so worth it, is Jenny Bukos, who is a multi-award-winning director and producer. She is the founder of Explore, an educational media strategist. In March 2013, she was on fire all over the place. She was selected one of the National School Board Association's 20 to watch in the ed tech community. In October 2013, she was named Top 40 Innovator in Education. That's a really big deal. By the Center for Digital Education, she's spoken at TEDx conferences in New York, Cincinnati, Sowetho in South Africa, and regularly lectures on the role of media in primary and secondary education. Jenny, I'm so thrilled. Thank you so much for being a guest on my show. Thank you, and thanks for the overwhelming introduction. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm so impressed with your pedigree, your background, and I'm just grateful to be able to say, yes, I got to have this conversation. So our show is always about learning technology and the future. What does it look like for jobs and industries? So I asked this question of all of my guests, what are five words that describe you and why those five words? And we did do a little prompting before. So, you know, certainly I can give you a, a nudge if you need one too. Okay, curiosity. Five, five words. Curiosity sparking producer, photo booth enthusiast. Okay, so <laughs> explain those. I love that it makes a little phrase that's super yeah. fun, but why those? So curiosity, curiosity sparking. That's what I want to do with kids. I just want to pique their curiosity. I want them to be interested. It's what keeps us young. It's what keeps us interested. It's what... Um, it drives so much of learning. Just being curious about the world tends to be where we fall down like the rabbit hole when we see something on TV and then we go online and we read about it and then we watch a film on it and then all of a sudden like it becomes a career path. <laughs> so I love the idea of sparking curiosity and fostering curiosity, not just in, in kids, but like just in life in general. I'm curious about everything. So curiosity sparking producer, I produce children's TV content. So that's pretty self-explanatory. The second part, photo booth enthusiast, a little odd, um, but for people who know me, I am obsessed with vintage photo booths, um, the kind that take like four minutes to print out and you have to shake them and they dry. And my rule in life is if you come across one of these gems, you immediately drop everything with who you're with, no matter what the situation is, and you capture the moment. Um, so it's just a, a tiny little thing that you do for yourself. And they're all over my refrigerator. They're on my walls in the bedroom. So whoever I'm with, if I come across one, that's what they have to do with me. I thought you might have one at home or at least a Polaroid, right? Life goal, life goal to have one at home. <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be so fun. You'd be the most popular person having parties. I know, <laughs> I know. I know where to get the vintage ones. I know who services them. Like that's that's how far this obsession goes. <laughs> wow, that's deep. That is yeah. really deep. I would agree with you on that one. I did a television show for the Discovery Channel and um, we worked with Syrian refugees and I speak English, a little bit of French, and these Syrian refugees spoke a little bit of German and mostly Arabic. And we were working through multiple translators to talk to these young kids about their experience. 
And we just couldn't get them to warm up. I mean, it's you have all these cameras on you and people don't speak your language and you don't quite know what's going on. There was a vintage photo booth down the street and we handed them a bag of coins and we went in with the producers and the film crew and we spent 20 minutes taking pictures. And then the second we came and back on set, the kids were ready to go to tell us their stories. So that it's just so idea, like, you know, when you when you just take a moment and do something silly, like everybody just opens up. Yeah, that's so true. But that was so smart. Brilliant to do that, right? Kids love that kind of thing. I, do you think it would have worked just as well if you had taken a like your cell phone and taken pictures? Because I've seen when we go out, we do filming. If we have a camera in somebody's face, they freeze up. But if we pull out a cell phone, it just seems like it's so natural. People just do it. I don't know. I think it's different. I think it's the magic of like, you only get four shots, right? Because your right. cell phone, you just take millions of them and you can filter them. But there's that magic of the moment. And it's like, you're only going to get four pictures. So like, who gets them when you're done? Um, mm. Are they actually going to come out? Were you in frame? I just did this in London last week. And like, I wasn't in frame for half of them. <laughs> so it's quite funny. Like my friend is clearly like screaming at me and I'm not even there. Um <laughs> So I don't know. I just think there's something magic when you come across them. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's that like, it's not that instant gratification. You have to wait for it. Um, so I love them. Oh, I like that also. So the next question that I go into is talk about your educational background. And how did you end up where you are now? Because it's a story and you know everybody loves good stories. Yeah. Um, so my origin story then. Um, I grew up in a town of 800 people in upstate New York with a single blinking traffic light um, in an agricultural community. So my life's goal was to just get out of that community. It was lovely, but it's not what I wanted for my life. I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to live in a big city. Um, and the only two careers I knew that you could do that with were doctors and lawyers. Those were the people in my community that made money. So I just assumed I had to be one of those people to have enough money to travel the world and do the things that I wanted to do. Um, I was quite a geeky kid in school. Um, I don't want to give away my age necessarily. I was very curious about the world, but it was pre-internet, obviously. Um, and my exposure to the world was PBS Michael Palin, who is of Monty Python fame, and he did this amazing travel series where he just got in and watched like shadow puppetry in Indonesia and got a haircut in Japan. And it was just like these moments of life around the world that I never thought I would experience. And then I would sneak to a travel agency and get all the brochures um, about where I could go in the world, how much it was going to cost to travel there. At like 13 years old, this was my life. Um, to the point where I would start calling airlines like TWA, which still existed at the time and saying, how much is it to go to Paris? I can tell you it like when I was in high school, it was $800 to go to Paris. Um, that's how geeky I was. Um, and there was kind of no one like me. So I hid these like under my bed, like it was a shameful thing that I wanted to do something that I didn't really know anyone else who had had that experience. So I hid it. Um, did very well in high school, um, went to college, and much to my parents' dismay, decided not to be pre-law after taking one class in the theater. You had to take an arts class, and it was either music, visual arts, or theater. And I thought, why not theater, especially if I might do pre-law? That would definitely help with courtroom performance. <laughs> that quickly pivoted to me studying Shakespeare for four years. Um, and when you graduate from college with a theater degree, you sort of have two pathways. 
you temp at a major firm or you wait tables. So I'm yeah. so glad like four years of education landed me in one of those professions. Um, I did both. I waited tables, but I also landed at a, a global investment bank. And within three weeks, they said to me, you're pretty smart. You're organized. Would you like to go work in Japan and Hong Kong for six months? And at 20 Whoa. years old, I got my first passport and left the country. So that's wow. that's the education background. And then everything falls in place from there. Yeah. So, but how did you decide to create Explore? Because I remember meeting you at the Orlando Science Center um, and you were doing something over there. It was in the filming something for Explore. But I'm pretty sure I had to have met you also at FETC. So here I am at FETC. We're in Orlando and your fans are here and they say <laughs> hello. So just giving a little shout out. Um, but how did you decide to get started in this? Because doing something in this space of creating videos that have some AR, VRs, all surrounded in STEM, it's a lot. Um, so I didn't think this was going to be my pathway, um, nor did I think working at an investment bank was going to be my pathway. But what the investment bank did for me is it gave me my first global experience. It gave me a passport. I did that job until September 11th. Um, after September 11th, my entire division was laid off um, for obvious reasons. I was based in New York at the time. And out of that came um, a severance package that allowed me to sort of step back and think, I'm 23 years old. What do I want to do with my life? Um, I have the Cedar degree. I'm not really going to be an actor because I don't have the talent. I'm not going to be a, a Broadway producer because I don't come with the family money. Um, and the days of creative producer are gone. I'm not really going to be a director because I didn't go to school for that. So what is it I'm really interested in? Well, it was connecting that desire to want to travel the world when I was a kid to Michael Palin's adventures, to thinking, you know what? Maybe I write a letter to Michael Palin and ask him, because I have a severance package now, can I travel the world with his film crew and learn what he does? Wrote a letter and I immediately heard back from his office saying, I think what you should do, first of all, you don't speak foreign languages, you don't have the skill set, and I travel with a crew of six people. Um, but I think if you're really interested, you should look at what the BBC is doing here in England called BBC Online Learning. And because of that piece of advice, I decided to start video-based educational content for kids like me to explore the world with never leaving their home community two years before YouTube existed. Because somebody took the time to answer a letter for me. And it was probably a letter that was sent by mail too, not email. I don't know. <laughs> we can talk about that later because I'm a big fan of letters. <laughs> I am too. I, I just think it's like people need to connect. You know, they don't teach cursive writing in school anymore. And that's the saddest thing in my opinion. I yeah. just watched my niece learn how to do it. And it was like magic for her um, oh. that she could learn to write things out um, to the point where she writes to me and photographs it and sends it because she doesn't know where in the world I'm going to be. So she'll write me a letter, photograph it and send it. That's so cute. So lovely. Yeah. So cute. So cute. So what is it that Explore does? Let's be even more specific. Let's yep. drill it down a bit more. And how did the U.S. Department of Education become your partner? 
Right. So um, it's called Explore Now. In 2003, when I founded this, you know, ed tech company, it wasn't even, ed tech wasn't even really a thing in 2003. Um, it was called Project Explore. And the idea was digital passports for kids who will never have the opportunity to leave their community, no matter how they define their community. And how do we bring that into the classroom in short form video? So everything was short form video with curriculum, everything you could ever want to learn or need to learn uh, from a global lens. So we're talking um, the science of curling in Canada. Um, and that's a lesson on friction, but it's also a Canadian tradition. The stones trace back to Scotland so that it becomes Scotland heritage. So it's global competency through the lens of core learning. So we did that. Um, I led that um, from 2003 to 2019 um, when I met uh, a woman named Carrie Byron, who did a little show called Mythbusters for 18 years um, and has the distinction of being like the first lady of American uh, STEM television communication. Um, and we sort of joined up and decided that STEM was the underpinning of so many things. Um, why not explore this globally? We did a show for Discovery Channel and then pivoted Project Explore to just the cute short name of Explore Now. Um, and that has led to where we are today. Carrie is the reason um, we landed a partnership with the U.S. Department of Education. Wow, that is a really key partnership to have. I know so many people that have I, I work with a lot of startups and I am a startup myself and we all dream of those types of opportunities and to have one like literally put in your lap is just unbelievable. But I mean, you worked for that. I know you did. So it's not like no, it was put in yeah, your lap. I'd say it's, it's 17 years and the, yeah. the draw of it. So I say Carrie was the, the instigator. Carrie was part of something under the Obama administration called the white house science fair. And when Obama left office, um, that that program went away. Administrations change, priorities and initiatives change. It's every administration is the same. She petitioned in some way, shape or form to have that brought back. And in 2022, she met Secretary Cardona from the U.S. Department of Education and then began pretty much a, a year long harassment campaign. <laughs> um, you know, pay attention to us, pay attention to us. And we wanted to do the the science fair and think of it as like the ultimate science fair celebrating kids projects but we really wanted to bring that digital expertise back so it wasn't just that moment in time for 200 kids who get to come to dc but how do we use digital storytelling and the explorer platform to drive engagement in stem beyond that 48 hours how do we tell stories of young people using stem to solve problems how do we tell stories of people in STEM jobs you may have never heard of, like a statistician for an NBA team? That's a math job. That's somebody's job. Um, and I don't think kids are aware that there are so many different career paths that are that are underpinned by STEM. Um, they they really don't. I yeah. I work out of a co-working place and we do game jams. And one of them is Indie Galactic Space Jam so that kids can see that they can have a career in space. We're pulling in the Mars rover. You know, we have all kinds of key partners and it's significant the way that it all happens. Yeah. Um, what you're doing is the most incredible thing that can happen for a child and for their parents is to be that I mean, highly engaged in that area. 
I can only imagine. And to be in the place of the White House um, with this STEM festival, it became a national event. So somebody had to petition for that, you know, to be able to get something to be a nationally recognized thing. Was that you or was it somebody else? It was Carrie and I together. Um, and, and it didn't take much convincing when you say we're going to throw a lot of of, of TV sparkle and science communicators behind this and really drive a national conversation and try to reach kids like me who studied Shakespeare and don't think STEM is for them and try to demonstrate how it affects every aspect of your life every single day. Um, from the technology like in your pocket, sitting on the table in front of me right now, to the chair you're sitting on, somebody engineered that. Like that is that is a STEM job. Um, your healthcare is better when you understand STEM. So like all of these things, um, you know, that sort of no one explained to me in school. Like this is why science is real world and relevant. Um, I think that's that's how this partnership came to be. Is we can connect the relevancy, and quite frankly, we can make it cool. You know, I think we need to go back just one, because normally I say, let's explain what the acronym is, because really most of my listeners all know what these acronyms mean, but not always. So let's talk about STEM and then STEAM. Let's yep. talk about both of them. Go ahead and explain the difference if you wouldn't mind. So STEM is simply science, technology, engineering, and math. And STEAM is science, technology, engineering, art, and math. Now. I am not an advocate for one over the other because I think that art and creativity absolutely plays a role in STEM. There is there is no disputing that. Like you have to be a creative thinker um, in the STEM space. The reason we're talking about the National STEM Festival is when you're judging a student's project on a very spe specific criteria, you cannot apply that same criteria to visual arts. Um, it's it's just not possible. So a national STEM fair is possible, a national art fair would be possible, but they're two very different criteria. I know that there's a lot of celebration in that. I love anything that's in STEM. Uh, one of my favorite things is also robots. We're going to be talking about that in the second half of the show, but just to just be able to wrap this up, when is this festival going to be, the National STEM Festival? The physical festival will take place in April, April 12th to 14th, um, and we've got roughly 200 kids descending in D.C. to show off their amazing projects, and they get to meet with members of the government and corporate thought leaders. Um, so really putting, giving kids a literal seat and voice at the table to talk about their concerns, their innovations, their research. Um, and then it'll be open to the public that Saturday the 13th if you want to come see some amazing kids. Oh, I would love to be able to do that. It's just such a thrill to be a kid of that age and be able to come to D.C. How does a child get selected? I mean, I remember having to put together my own science experiment and do this, but there was no STEM festival or anything like that. So how is it? That, do they have to apply online? Is it something that they're picked by the school? What happens? We did a nationwide call so you could apply online through your school, individually, through an after-school program, um, and we activated up to 125 organizations to help us get the word out, particularly students who are underserved, under-resourced, or don't have these opportunities. We really wanted to make sure they were part of this conversation. We had 3,700 kids apply. 
um, and over a thousand volunteers all the way from NASA to Google to Amazon, Siemens, Panasonic, Johnson & Johnson reviewed the projects on a set criteria. But what I love about what we did for our first year doing this is every student got meaningful feedback on their project. So imagine if you're 12 years old and you spend three months working on a project and you just get, you didn't make it to the next round. Every kid got something from a professional in a STEM field, encouraging them to continue on their path, whatever their path is, narrowed that down. And this last week we decided on the 150 or so odd kids with another review panel that looked for potential impact in the community, innovation, um, and innovation in their work. That has to be so exciting because I imagine that their names are published. It becomes like a press release. It's something that is a memory that is beyond any anything they could dream of. Our goal is to elevate and celebrate student excellence. Yeah, how, I'm just curious, uh, how could I be involved with that? Is it something that just a regular person can assist with and, and come and do the evaluations? How does a person step up. Um, yeah, for, for next year, we'll definitely be doing evaluations and that's all done virtually. So no matter where you are, you can have an impact um, on a child's life, which I think is incredible. I mean, you can literally sit on your couch and review these projects in your sweats, <laughs> yeah. which, well, is, which is not always easy when people say, I want to volunteer, but I don't know where to do it, or yeah. I can only do it late at night. Um, at the actual festival itself, if you want to come to DC, we will find a place for you to, <laughs> to help out. We need a we need a lot of hands to make this happen. Oh my gosh, it is thrilling. Um, I was a public classroom teacher, and I remember having an in service, and I think you'll appreciate this. Uh, an in service for our listeners is when um, teachers have to do a workshop that's going to provide more continuing education units for their license to stay current. So one of the ones that uh, I went through was how to, I was an English teacher, how to bring more economics into my class. And so what I did is um, I created play money, kind of like monopoly money. It had my name, Johnston money, right? And all of it, because I worked in underserved I worked, worked in the projects with kids. So my goal was to change behaviors and so that they could see what they could do. And I asked them to bring something to write with and something to write on. They had to be seated before the bell rang. And then they were not supposed to touch anybody around them. That's very hard for seventh graders to do. The If I messed up and I would mess up purposely in front when I was teaching, they could get money. If they were seated, but you know, when the bell rang, they got money. Every They would get reinforced with money. And there was a big treasure box in the back of the room. So every Friday was bank day. And so they could go over and they could either turn money in and either get a giant movie cut out that they could take home. Literally, these are the things I got for free. I want to have zero budget. So... They could get movie posters, they could get travel posters, they could get a whole lot of stuff that people would give me for free. So they could also have the option of saving it, banking it for the end of the semester, where if they had one grade that was an F, they could turn that in. And that one grade, if it was a test, a major test, could become an A. It, it wasn't that they were buying the grade. They had to learn how to save. They had to learn how to control their emotions. But the play money um, also, 
They could use it to buy a pass to be the first one in line at lunch line because they only have 20 minutes for lunch. <laughs> they could be the first one on the bus. And so it got street value and they were buying it. And that was the thing that was so amazing to me. But I thought you might appreciate that story because it truly is. It's economics. That's money. That's part of STEM. It's math. And it did change their behavior. And they could see they they could do more than what they thought. So I was I, so proud of them. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And so that's why I'm I'm really interested in how I can participate because I'm truly sincere. Like when we get off, you know, your 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 people should send me something because I would be interested in participating for sure. Yeah. We'd love that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we now know more about this. And so this is an annual event. How long does this take to ramp up? Because I don't know, is it just like all a month or do you, it takes a while to get this information out to the teachers and the schools and to the students. Yeah, we, we started a little later than we would have liked to this year. Um, we started around June, which teachers are already out, but that's really where a lot of the out-of-school programs did, summer programs, so a lot of kids doing you know summer robotics, summer coding. We were able to work there. Then they had a 60-day window to submit because um, you can't just tell kids submit. They need to refine and, and get yeah. it in, and a lot of them have last-minute-itis, so we thought, oh, there aren't a lot of applications, and then like the last night, like 900 come in. Wow. Um, at like 11.59 p.m. Um, then the review process takes a month. There's a, a finalist selection where every kid has to submit a 90-second video explaining their project and what we expect to see from them. And I have to tell you, some of these kids, as a teenager, I would not have put myself out there that way. That is incredibly brave to put 90 seconds explaining to a random panel of professional judges um, and every finalist did it. We thought, oh, some of them are not are not going to come through. Every kid did it, um, mm. which just it gives me so much hope. Like that, that they're risk takers. Um, even if the videos were awkward or uncomfortable, they still went through the process. Um, that is just this this commitment to to continuing something you've started. Um, mm -hmm. I think we don't think this generation has it. I've seen the opposite. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, what is the age of this competition? It's six, through, it's six through 12th grade. We didn't put an age on it. We do have some like 10-year-olds who are now in ninth grade because they've skipped multiple grades. Yeah. Um, I mean, every one of these kids, even if they weren't finalists, they're all geniuses in their own way because they all picked something that was personal to them or their community and they tried to solve that problem. Um, and I just think if we have an entire generation working and thinking that way, we're going to be okay. You know what? I think your program lends itself really easily into something I see that MIT does. It's called Solve. And I love it because they're always solving problems that are global issues. It could be water. It could be food. It could be energy. But you are inciting these kids to, to do something that's beyond what they thought was possible. We hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 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 that's that is so much where we're grateful for all of these professional um, volunteer reviewers that came in to to sort of look at it. And they also now have an understanding of what kids are interested in, what they're concerned about, um, what they're seeing every day in their communities. There were so many project submissions around the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, around tech for the elderly. Um, 
apps for loneliness among the elderly. Um, and a lot of them said, because of my grandfather, because of my grandmother. Um, so they're, I mean, just these kids are deeply, it's the, the level of empathy that they bring to problem solving as well is just extraordinary. Many of the times, this is what I noticed about the kids of that age uh, or that demographic, they were being raised by their grandparents. And because, you know, it was a very unfortunate, it's just sad. Um, their parents may not be available, so the grandparents were raising them. So I'm really so appreciative of the fact that they could love their grandparents that much that they went, yes, I want to be able to make a difference here. Yeah, so that's. It's inspiring. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you're right. I feel warm and fuzzies all over the place because of what you're sharing. So this is amazing stuff. So we're going to switch over into uh, a different topic. It's tied to superheroes. Now, I had mentioned this to you before, you know, we had gone on camera. And there's the, been this a lot of studies about power posing. And I was first exposed to this on Grey's Anatomy because one of, one of the doctors, I'm binging this because my mother loved it, honestly. My mother's no longer around. So I went, well, I'm just going to sit down and watch it. So I watch an episode every night. But one of the doctors talked about how if whenever she was feeling you know, very sad or she needed a boost of confidence, that according to this study and researchers, it's at Martin Luther University at the University of Bamberg and The Ohio State published a meta-analysis <clears throat> look at 130 experiments that explored the power posing concept. And it was, there were 10,000 participants. So this is what they do. They stand up. I'll demonstrate in a minute. And then they put their, you know, fists on their hips, their feet are slightly apart, and their chest is out, and then they just gaze off into that wherever that they're gazing. And truly, I have two people down at the place where I work, they do this, one's a young man and one's a, a young lady, and they come in and they just do it. They don't even pay attention. They come into the room, and they're like, okay. Yes. And they start talking with me and I'm going, <laughs> I cannot help but do it back with them. And so I think it's super funny, but I love it. And I sit there and I feel a little awkward, but it also feels super empowering <laughs> is all I can say. You, what do you do to help boost your confidence? I love it. And, and I'm, I'm familiar with the power pose and I love that you sent this to me and we had a, a conversation about it. For, for someone who struggled with body issues, that's not something that like I would ever be comfortable doing. I have two things. One is, um, and if you look at like my social media, I wear power pink. And let me tell you, like when the Barbie movie came out, I'm like, yay, I'm going to have clothes forever because it's, it's just, it's what I feel comfortable in. It's what I feel powerful in. But also as a producer, I'm always looking for like that color that pops in pictures or when you're in an event to be like, oh, she's the woman in all hot pink. <laughs> like, so that's one thing. It's just like, you know, find, find what like makes you comfortable. Um, but I was just in London um, seeing a show by Alan Cumming, um, who did Cabaret on Broadway many, many years ago, The Good Wife, um, one of my favorite actors. And he was telling a story about when he met um, Florence Henderson, M Mama Brady, who is no longer alive. 
Um, and, and he tells, um, he did this event and then he went to a party afterwards and he and Florence Henderson decided that they were going to walk into the room laughing hysterically about something that never happened. And everyone turned around and wanted to know who they were, what they were talking about, what was so funny and immediately became the center of attention at this party with Hollywood people. So that is now my thing. Whenever I enter a room, I'm going to do it laughing with or without someone. So I immediately have that, well, she must be confident. Um, she must know something we don't know. And now we need to talk to her to find out what it is. So that is my, my physical thing that I can do now. Um, and I think if you're speaking and you walk on stage, like walk on with that attitude. <laughs> oh, man, I love that. I, I really do. Okay, so I'm going to be speaking uh, at a couple conferences, well, three coming up. I'm going to remember that and do it. I think that, yeah, that would totally do it because people are going to go, what, what's so funny? What did I miss out? They're going to feel like they missed out and they're going to Her life know. must be great. Something's amusing. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so thank you, Alan Cumming, for, for shedding that uh, little bit of light. Um, and now it's everyone who's listening to this. <laughs> you know what? There's another way that you can even fake that. I don't think you can do it as easily on a stage for sure. But um, it would be, nobody can tell that you have headphones on. So they're going to think that you're just laughing because of, but they still want to know what it is, right? And it could have been that somebody pinched you right before you went on the stage. And so what do you do? You're going to have to laugh. Um, a friend of mine also, when he speaks at conferences, takes a selfie um, with the audience. Um, and I, I kind of love that, that it's before he starts speaking, he walks out and he's like, group selfie, everybody stand up takes the picture with everyone in the audience um, and then starts his conversation. And I just think that's so lovely to just be like, I acknowledge that you're here. This is a moment in time and you're all part of my story. Okay. It goes back to what you did with the kids. <laughs> it absolutely does. I think it breaks the ice. I love that. I'm going to use that here on out. That's a great one too. Those are great ideas because when you're doing that, everybody stops whatever they're doing because they're going to smile. They're in the picture. And it pulls everybody together. That's brilliant. We try little, little tiny things. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is great. All right. So last question before we take a break here is what would you want to be remembered for in your life? Um, probably not what you would expect. So before we started recording, you said, well, STEM. Yeah. I, I would like to be remembered for two things. One, I'd like to be the person who helps elevate kids who deserve a voice but aren't often given given them. So that is the whole point of the STEM festival, but that's not related to STEM. And the other thing I would like to be remembered for is just kindness. Um, and I think that that's something that a lot of us are missing in our lives and we just forget how easy it is to be kind to someone. Um, it literally costs you nothing and it takes you two seconds a day to just be kind. Um, so that's, that's what I'd like to be remembered for. Yeah, that is a good reminder too. Um, people always like to be seen and heard and being kind is one of those ways that we can do that. Yeah. Not just walking by, you know, somebody, whether, I know I live in a place where there's a lot of homeless on the street, but um, don't avoid them. You can at least say hello and we don't nearly have enough money to hand out to all of them. But we can't say hello. Right. Just yeah. it, that's that scene. Um, and they're humans. So yes. 
Absolutely. Well, this is a lovely way to finish that. We're going to take a break and acknowledge Cat Vibe Studios, the sponsor of our show, and we'll be right back. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. Now we're back to the second half of our show where we talk about the future of jobs and industries in 2030. So what do you think 2030 is going to look like in the world? This is an opinion question. So there's no right or wrong answer. Everybody has an opinion. Um, your industry and potential jobs. That's okay. And let me give you a framework too. This year doesn't count. 2030 doesn't count. So we're really talking five years in between that time frame. Five years. Um, five years is both like a whisper away and like an eternity. <laughs> I like that you said that a whisper away. I'm writing that down. I really like that. <laughs> um, okay. So let's talk, let's talk education first. Um, I, this is tough because I'm not an education policy maker. I, I, I think coming out of COVID I'm hoping <laughs> we will see a shift towards respect for teachers and giving them more space to teach to kids in a way that's relevant and relatable to students. Um, I, I'd like to hope we see, I'd like to, I, I'd really like to think we start to value teachers. We all remember during the pandemic, everyone's like, oh, teachers deserve a million dollars and they're the heroes. Well, we haven't seen that implemented. And I would really, really like to see that implemented Otherwise, we're going to have a crisis in education, and I don't want to bring this down, um, but I think that's going to be a huge shift. I think AI is going to be a huge shift in how teachers teach, and I'm not quite sure where that's going because we're in the infancy of that right now, and anyone who sort of says they're an expert on K-12 AI education, like ChatGPT just came out a year ago in December. <laughs> There's no one that can be that far advanced yet on that, but I think... Um, going back to some of the submissions for the STEM festival, a lot of kids were using AI. So there, it is going to be integrated into the classroom and into work because kids are interested. And if we want to meet kids where we're at and take them where we want them to be and need them to be, we also need to understand what interests them and what, mm -hmm. what they're dabbling in. So I can give you an example of a student who has used machine learning to translate American Sign Language, so ASL, um, and recognize those letters and words um, through a camera on your phone and those words pop up. So if you only speak in ASL, and I'm um, a person who is not deaf or hard of hearing, I can point my camera at you and now see what you're saying real time. That's the type of innovation we're seeing in education. So I... I so I think when we talk about like robotics and coding and what kids want to learn, um, they're already there and we need to catch up. So we have five years to catch up. <laughs> um, that makes sense. Just in education. Wow. That is really, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that because I work with a lot of individuals with disabilities and I have quite a few articles I put out about making sure that your for those that are colorblind on a website that you think about those things so that your website is accessible for those that are colorblind, that the font size is large enough for those with poor vision or low vision, that they can actually read it. 
And can they put in some type of a reader that will read the words out loud? Those are necessary, but I never thought about what you just described for those that sign. Can you sign? I, I took some classes in it, but I didn't keep up with it. So I can't say, I can't even do the whole alphabet. When you were doing it, I went, well, you can do more than way more. I can than do the I'm. alphabet, but they also teach a lot of like little kids to sign. So like, this is more. So like when we right. were teaching my niece, like more mommy um, in third grade, I learned to sign. We are the world, the eighties the song. <laughs> um, I wish I knew more, um, but also a ASL is different from British Sign Language. So it's not like if you speak Spanish, you can speak to everyone in the Spanish speaking community. Um, there's also a thing about signing for STEM that so many of the, the words that we've come up with, like climate change, there were no shortcut signs for them. So when we do Zoom conferences or in-person events and we have to bring in um, an ASL interpreter, the fact that there are no shortcuts means you have to slow everything down, you say, um, which is hard for the audience that's hearing to engage, but then it's it's also difficult if you speak faster for the ASL to interpret because they can't keep up with the fact that there are no shortcuts. So just thinking about things that way that, you know, we have like 4,000 words for climate change and the climate emergency that have no, that have no short signs yet, um, which is astonishing to think of. Like, how do we not have shortcuts for these things? Like carbon capture, how do we not have shortcuts for that? Um, yeah, so we think about that a lot. And a lot of the projects submitted for the STEM Festival were about accessibility, um, equity, um, and a lot of it is coding, machine learning, and AI. So but, kids are already there. Teachers need to get there <laughs> because employers yes. want that skill set. But from what I'm seeing, the kids already have the interest in the skill set. It just needs to be cultivated. I have worked with some of the deaf uh, that have chosen a career in video production. And I found that so intriguing. And I said, how do you produce uh, a video if you cannot hear it? And they were explaining to me that the technology is they feel with their feet. The, there's a mat on the floor. They can feel the vibrations of the music, the whatever the noises are, they, they can hear that uh, through their body, through their body. But they also looked that there was um, some displays that they have on their equipment that would show them what type of music it was or some of the beat, things of that nature. I had this one student that worked with me that had gone through tremendous amounts of physical therapy. And when she spoke, she sounded like a regular hearing person. But it took her years to do that. And I said, so how did you learn? And she she said, just like Helen Keller, a lot of kids don't know who that is. Um, it's through touching your throat and being able to. Vibrations, yeah. And watching the mouth uh, be able to form the words. So it's it's quite hard to do. And it's quite an accomplishment when they do. And I always think that if I could speak sign language it would be a tremendous gift um because people don't think of that as a language because it's not spoken like most foreign languages yeah absolutely yeah. so incredible well i really enjoyed that whole conversation that we had there what what do you think can positively or negatively impact stem in the future or even now 
just even now? Positively. Um, positively, I think we just really need to foster kids' creativity. Again, like curiosity sparking creativity. STEM is kind of one of those subject areas like kids love it when they're little because they get to build things and make things and you can be wrong. But like the second you get to like fifth or sixth grade, like the value of a right answer takes that joy away. So positively impact, I think we give space for kids to fail, fail up though. So they learn from their mistakes um, and they can reiterate and tinker. I think we need more space for that. Um, negatively, I mean, I, without getting to it, I, I think that there, there is a movement in this country to discredit STEM. Um, I, I don't think, I know there is, is a movement among some people. And I think that is incredibly dangerous um, to question medical advice from scientists who have dedicated their entire lives to researching um, and, and supporting. Um, I don't want to get too political, but I think we, we have a danger. And that's not a, a danger unique to this country. That's not a danger unique to this time period. This has happened throughout the world since the dawn of time. Um, so I think that that's that's both sides to the coin <laughs> it does depend on who is the leader in that country and how they want to spend money and what they view as the most important thing that is for sure and i agree with you totally it's not it's it's something that's a global issue yeah and there's a, like there's a pendulum in education right so like stem is really hot right now you know we are talking about social emotional learning we invested in the arts a long time ago and sort of you know like english language arts so i don't think it's a zero sum game i don't think we can have just one policy to just say like stem is the future of everything in this country then what happens to things like cursive writing what happens to literature what happens to art what happens to the humanities what happens to global understanding i think we need to look at this from a country and like a global perspective of you know, how do we provide as many experiences, lived experiences and opportunities to kids as possible and not just be so one tracked? Yeah, I, I usually tell the people that work with me, listen, I mess up every single day. So I want you to know, I, I know you're going to mess up. So we need to make sure that we're okay with saying, oh, I, gosh, I totally bombed this. I had this one student that was interning with me and she accidentally did an upgrade on a platform that I use. And she didn't want any, anybody to know that. She went around to all of the new interns and would say, how do I fix this? I was at a conference. She didn't reach out to me or text me or anything. They said, you need to go and talk to Isabella. She still didn't want to do it. It was eight hours later. It was eight o'clock in the evening. She finally calls me and she says, I did this and I, I tried to solve my problem. And I respect that, but I said, there are some problems that you need to go and say right away, oh, I did this because there's no shame in that. But I said, that was a $3,000 mistake. And so now I have to go back and go and ask that to be credited back to me because you waited eight hours and when it would have been a lot easier at the beginning. So I love the concept of what you're saying here. So that the value of being able to make mistakes. I don't know what happens. It's it. I guess it is when we go to school. Um, I work with three and four year olds, and they just come in 
and they're just oblivious to the fact that they mess up or whatever. And I love that freedom. And so I think that what I'm also hearing you talk about is the fact that we need to remember that each of us has a three, four or five year old and it's okay to play and it's okay to make mistakes. And it doesn't matter how big or how old we are. We, we need to remember that. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think we've lost a lot of that in education, although there are extraordinary teachers um, doing this kind of work um, all across the country, all across the world that sort of allow that space for kids to to tinker and fail and learn from it and reiterate and try again. Um, and I just think that's really important. I mean, certainly as a business leader, if you if you make a mistake, unless it's going to cause like the downfall of the entire company. Like you get multiple opportunities come to me and say like, this is what I've done. How do we work together to fix it? Um, and, and I'd like to think that I'm that kind of leader. Oh, I'm absolutely sure you are because you, you work with kids and kids need to feel they're in a safe space. And so do the adults that work with the kids. So by nature, I'm going to say, yes, you are. <laughs> yeah. Great. So Robots. I love robots so much. Um, children love to play with them. They're fascinated by them. I know that's one of your key partners. If you want to talk about it, you can. But, you know, let's talk about robots. What do you want to share? Um, you know, until I started doing the STEM festival again, let's go back to the fact that I'm a Shakespeare expert. Um, I really didn't know a lot about them. Um, and this is where I think it's so interesting to have like student advocates and a student voice at the table with leaders and teachers and, and stakeholders, because I honestly would have no idea that like middle schoolers and high schoolers are this into like robotics and coding. Um, robots for me were like the little thing when I was a kid that like you pressed a button and it maybe brought you a drink and it went away. I have, I had no idea that kids were doing the advanced things that they were doing now. And a lot of it for them is just playful and joyful. Um, we have a kid that had, um, submitted a project, um, in the Bronx and he developed glasses for blind people to wear and coded it on the side with like a raspberry pie micro uh, micro bit that when a blind person walks near an object it just goes ping so rather than having the the cane like you just get a little tiny ping anytime you're near an object but we asked him about what his inspiration and he said it's because i was in a robotics class and i used to think his video goes i used to think robots were this <laughs> but i realized they're everything and this kid is in sixth grade and it caused it it then put him on the path to code something for his blind uncle um, so he doesn't walk into things when he's in unfamiliar environments um but but my 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 uh, expertise with robots is very limited, but I'm learning from kids um, every day. Oh, me too. Me too. Because down here at the future of educational technology, there are robots all around. And I, it started talking to me and I, I asked them and it was your friends. It was um, United sure. Robotics. Yep. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I was talking with Olivia. And she, I said, is there a person that's actually talking to me? Do they see me? What's going on? They said, no, that was AI that was being used in there. I didn't know this. So, you know, you ask questions and I do not feel bad for asking questions or saying, gee, I don't know. <laughs> so it started saying even more things to me. And I said, I'm going to touch you. And I touched its hand and it said, 
touching my hand is something that you really should not do unless you ask permission. (laughs) I love it. I I loved it. it. I loved it. Yeah. And I just was having the best time with this little robot who was about half my size. It was, you know, like I'm five, two. So, you know, it's a good three feet tall, you know, definitely. Anyway, um, I love robots. They can do so much. You know, I like those Boston new technology robots that go around and they dance and they jump off of things and everything. So they I do feel like, surgery. I mean, they do surgery. I know, right? Um, yes. You don't, you don't think about like all the little, like I think about like manufacturing robots or, but I, what kids are doing with it now. I have a dear, a dear friend who's a, um, a writer and an actor. Um, and I'm going to name drop. His name is Patterson Joseph and he's the chancellor at a university as well in England. And he said, I always enjoy being the person in the room who knows the least because I will be the person who walks out with the most new information and the most new knowledge. So when it comes to robotics, that's the perspective I'm taking. When I walk into these these events and these conferences and meet these kids, I'm probably the person who knows the least, but I'm going to learn the most. I agree with you. I think that is the best that's probably even better than laughing coming into the room by just making this admission I usually tell people, if this is like all knowledge in the world, hold your arms out on both sides. How much do you really know? Like this much. So really, we we think we're supposed to know a lot, but we really don't have to. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about STEM and the impact in the future. What else do you think we could possibly be looking for? I mean, you talked about those little glasses that would just ping and let somebody know, oh, there's something around you. But Apple's dropping their new goggles, you know, real soon. Yeah. I don't know. There's so much that's different. I've seen some Black Mirror episodes and they would go and put something the size of a penny on a person's uh, temple. And then that becomes the AR experience. I'm just going, is it possible? Yes, it's in science fiction. So now it's totally possible. I don't know. With with Star Trek, every innovation has come to fruition with the exception of human teleportation. So mm-hmm. yes, <laughs> everything is possible. That's kind of how I see it. Um STEM in the future. Okay, so and and I I wish I remembered where the statistic is from. Um it's a recent study. 70% of jobs are underpinned by STEM. Mm-hmm. So um, if we're looking at future forecasting jobs, just this idea of, again, going back to like curiosity, creativity, problem solving, no matter what the jobs are in the future, five, 10, 15 years, if kids can't like problem solve and use like core engineering and scientific and math to under underpin it, we've got a problem. If we've set kids up for that, we're okay for the future. I, I really, really believe that. But when we're looking at things like climate change, an aging population, um, resistance to antibiotics. Like these are things we need big thinking. We need people who understand, we need all the voices at the table to solve this. It's not gonna come from one city, one country, one state, one university. We need all the voices at the table because you don't know what perspective they're gonna bring. Also, who are you solving for? Um, and I think a lot of this goes into back to COVID, like when we were developing vaccines, like 
Have we tested it on pregnant women? Have we tested it on? So we need all the voices at the table. We need all the perspectives and we need to make sure that STEM never loses its humanity. So who are you creating and solving for and not just solving to invent something that makes money? Yeah, I like that. I like it a lot because I I agree. I say something very similar, like just because we can doesn't mean we should, you know? We need to remember that there's people here and that doesn't mean everything has to be automated. It's okay if we have somebody that is at Walmart that's greeting me and saying, hi, it doesn't need to be a robot. doesn't have to be these kind of anything that's just taking away um, human jobs because I don't think every human job should be eliminated. I think if we're looking at future of work, the jobs that exist today, like AI prompter is like, there are thousands of those that didn't exist two years ago. So mm-hmm. it's really hard to sort of future forecast what jobs are going to look like. We know that they're going to be in healthcare, though. We know that. We know that we have an aging population. We know that we have increasing medical issues. So we know that. We also know it's going to be in climate and it's going to be in energy. Like we have increasing energy needs. Um, so just giving kids that like core skill set to solve, no matter what those jobs look like. Mm-hmm. Um, we also know like, anything connected to food is going to be important. You think food isn't a STEM thing, but like how we grow, how we, just the technology to get the food to your refrigerator, that is that is an entire STEM career pathway. Um, you know, how are we tracking it? How do we make sure that it's safe? <laughs> there are so many different things that we can just pull out themes um, and know that there are going to be jobs in those themes and fields, but we just don't know what those jobs are going to look like. So how do we create resiliency, um, comfort with ambiguity? I mean, these are, we think they're soft skills, but they're really not. Like they are core skills that like every kid needs to to have. There's this series on Netflix that I really, I've talked about quite a bit, but I, I think it's very relevant and I hope they keep adding to it. It's called The Future Of. And in that one, they talk about how our homes will be more um, something that we would need a botanist to help us take care of because it's going to be built around plants and there would be plants growing on it. And we would be able to have our own little farm inside of it. And what would be on the ground is is grass. And I'm sitting there, I don't think so. I don't want to have what comes with grass, which is ants and other things. But we would be having uh, a way to just like, grow our own furniture too and they could accelerate that type of furniture growth you know with the plants where they weave around each other and it was reminding me quite a bit of things that I had seen in Avatar and I think that's where some of it comes from but they talked about having our food and having um, how we need to be thinking that we could just create our own clothes you know and 3D clothes there was so much there that if you go back and you watch it, there was a discussion about human composting. And I went, is this a real thing? And I started Googling it and I went, yes, it is. Yes, it is. (laughs) Right? Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, and then our consciousness is being put into the ground and it grows up into the trees. And I went, this is Avatar. I've seen this. It's a movie, you know, but there's just so much that's out there of what can be done. And I feel like we need to be following more, um, individuals that are in science fiction that do dream big and these are the kids that you're talking about that are in steam 
And that's, that's the steam. That's the storytelling artistic side to this. And it inspires so much. I love well, the human composting. I just talked about that with my husband this weekend. Did you? <laughs> it's like, oh my what, you, like what, what do you want to have done to you? <laughs> you know, cause over, over the holidays, you don't have a lot to do. So we're like, hmm, we should make a life plan. I'm like, maybe if I was planted into a tree and I'm like, and I think New York allows it now. <laughs> it does. It was legal. Yeah. It is legal there. Yeah. Not in Florida so much, but um, yeah, I started looking, if you know somebody that does that, I've been wanting to have them as a guest on my podcast because I think it's an interesting topic and we shouldn't shy away from it because that's a job path. It is a job path. Um, we can find that for you. This is, okay. this is the magic of being a producer. I can sort of find everybody. <laughs> okay. I'm pretty the sure big, you can. The big career path and, and, you know, this may gross out some of your, your listeners, but the big career path that I've always wanted to film as an origin story is um, a poop detective. Because first of all, anything poop, you yes. um, automatically have kids like, cause they're like, yay, I get to learn about this in class. But there are people who um, like CDC medical doctors who will go in and test wastewater and waste for, they did it for COVID. So before you showed up on the COVID test, they could say like, there's a COVID outbreak in this building because it's showing up in the wastewater. They can also do it for drug addiction. So you can say this community now has an opioid crisis because it's showing up in the wastewater. What a cool thing. Like that is a job. It's disgusting, but kids would be like obsessed with it. And then to give the guy like a little hat and like look like Sherlock Holmes, like that would just go viral. So, but that is a job. That is somebody's job and it saves lives. Yeah, it does. I've seen what you were talking about also. <laughs> I don't know. I watch a lot of these futuristic things and I don't think that they're that far away, honestly. It's either already happening right, or it's it's happening and we don't know about it, but it's like they're out there. It's actually, it's in play. Well, it's so hard to believe we're at the end of the show. So the last question, next to last question is, what is the best mentoring advice that you want to share with our listeners? Okay, be bold and write letters. You brought the letters back. I, I told you I would bring it back at the end. So every good thing that has happened in the first 10 years of my career was because I wrote a letter. Um, and not only did I write a letter, I put a tea bag in with letters and I would write, please make yourself a cup of tea and let me tell you a story. And then I would write a letter of what I wanted to ask people. Um, and to this day, 20 years on, people who I sent that to remember that. Um, I was given an award from the White House um, in 2013. And when I asked them how I got it, they said, because a group of kids wrote letters to the White House <laughs> after you went in and said, write letters. <laughs> so it works. People get hired by me um, for writing a letter, especially after they interview with me. Um, it gets attention. Um, and I just think it's deeply personal and it's an art that is lost, but it shows you were thoughtful and you take the time. Um, to to really put well literal pen to paper. Um, so yes, write letters. I love that. I love it so much. You know what I thought you were going to tell me, and I would buy this if you had it. If you were, I thought you were going to tell me that you have a book where you've written a letter every day to somebody, and now you've bound it into a book. I think you could honestly do that right now if you gathered all of those letters back up. But it'd be really cool to see that. 
I wrote a letter to Jimmy Carter and he wrote me a letter back. I have a book of like all the incredible people that I've ever wanted to meet who I wrote letters to who said no to filming with me, but they said no in the form of a letter, <laughs> which <laughs> um, is just beautiful. And I will have that forever. So you want to get hired, write a letter. Don't tweet at me and say, hey, you hiring, like figure out and be creative and get get attention. I think that's great. So how can our listeners contact you? Um, usually we supply your LinkedIn profile, but what else would you like? Uh, LinkedIn is great. Um, explore.com, E-X-P-L-R.com. Um, and on all the social medias, I'm Jenny, J-E-N-N-Y, Bucos, B-U-C-C-O-S. I have the privilege of having one of those weird last names. So when you look for me, I'm probably the only one in the world. I don't know. Is that your husband's last name? No, it's my name. Well, you're right. You are the only one then probably. No, my husband, so. my husband's Dixon. So I'm like, no, that's not Googleable. <laughs> and Lean it's into that common. strength. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to tell you, thank you so much. This has been delightful. It's it's been something that, like I said, I really was hoping would happen. And I want to tell you that you made my day. So thanks so much. Likewise. Thank you. What a lovely conversation. Bye-bye. Bye. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios. Thank you to our video editor, Max Stein. Our music is by Sophie Lloyd. Visit Employers for Change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusive culture while skilling your people for the future of work. You can support The Intern Whisperer by subscribing to us on Podbean, our Employers for Change YouTube channel, or follow us on your favorite podcast streaming app.